So it was uh, serendipitous, but probably not accidental, that um, we had Doc Pelletier talking this morning about relationships, because that's one of the uh, key themes that you'll uh, be hearing in, in a moment. So it is tr uh, truly my honor to introduce uh, Dr. Sunil Luthar uh, this morning. There are a, a few things that I've read in my life where it had such an impact that I can remember the time and place when I read it. And I would not have imagined that an article in the journal Development and Psychopathology <laughs> would have been one of those moments, but it was. And to be honest, I had never heard of that journal before, but Dr. Luther's article entitled, I Can and Therefore I Must, Fragility and the Upper Middle Classes, was the research and the writing I had been looking for but had not found. As a teacher and an administrator and also as a parent of two adolescents, I've seen up close high-achieving students in high-achieving communities excel academically but struggle increasingly across a range of well-being indices. I had anecdotes, I had theories to support what I was seeing but not the research and the data to explain it nor clarity around what we as educators and parents can do together for our children. Dr. Luther's article was the best and most significant work I had read in an area that is absolutely fundamental for schools like ours, the well-being of high-achieving children. After receiving her PhD from Yale, Dr. Luther worked at Columbia University's Teachers College where she focused her research on vulnerability and resilience among at-risk groups like youth in poverty and among children and families affected by mental illness. Later, as foundation professor of psychology at Arizona State, she founded a company called Authentic Connections that focused on vulnerability and resilience among high-achieving students and also on the challenges of motherhood. Her research expertise and experience as a parent of two children provide us with a unique and critically important opportunity to understand what our children are telling us about their well-being and what we can do about it. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Luther. So I usually start by saying I'm happy to be here, but let me say I'm delighted to be here. I uh, find myself struggling, I think I'm in tears, that hug was as much because I like Ron and because I think I needed that hug this morning. Why? Because uh, I'm moved by bishops. Ron mentioned the challenges our kids are facing. I have raised two, mine are now 28 and 25. Uh, you mentioned Grandparents' Day. I was taken back to my own kids' Grandparents' Day. I have studied this phenomenon for so many years and seen Doc was in tears talking about the one kid that he missed. I go to one school after another every week, communities like yours, and have not felt so... Uh, filled with hope that maybe this is a community where we can be doing it. Maybe not right, but at least close to right. I have a good nose for where things are hidden under the surface, and my nose has not picked up one thing saying that, nah, it's not ringing true. Uh, I said I wanted that hug. This is a good man. And I literally met him yesterday morning for the first time. I actually spoke to him for the first time. I don't think we've spoken before then. 
So my team, we have a team now that uh, we collect the data, and our CEO and research director, they talk to this whole gang over here, all the administrative team, and they give me the lowdown of what I should expect. Uh, this is a great team. This is an happen. Watch out for. And they just uniformly said, you are going to like these people. They're good, they're good eggs. And that's pretty much. Why am I giving you this song and dance? Because it is scary out there. And you will see from, I guess, my uh, first slide. This was in the Washington Post last month, which I don't know if you folks saw. Uh, it's based on a report from the National Academies of Science, which has now placed our kids, kids in high achieving schools, in the same category of at-risk kids who need special attention as kids in foster care, uh, kids who are in deep poverty, um, recent number, and kids of incarcerated parents. Uh, people ask me, so does that trouble you? And my answer to that is actually not, because this has been uh, an issue that, as Ron mentioned, I've been pursuing now for probably 20, 25 years, saying we've got trouble here, folks. You need to pay attention. This is not one rich community or one set of spoiled people or the suburbs or the city or Manhattan or L.A. or San Diego. This is a, a – and, and we have a paper that's coming out, which will be the follow-up to I Can, Therefore, I Must – where I, we actually use the term an epidemic. It's a peer-reviewed journal. It's the leading journal in our field of, of American psychologists. And the editors and the peer reviewers let that pass. So this is not hyperbole. This is really a thing that is happening to our kids around the huge amounts of pressure that, that they face. And that really is the uniting theme. Pressure coming from where? Pressure coming from everywhere. So, I mean, if you'd like to read that article, it's a little summary, and there's another one that should be coming out soon based on this new paper, which I'm happy to share with you if you'd like to share with the parent party. So there was a sort of long preamble, which I don't usually give, but it's coming from my heart. I speak to you as a... Uh, this is where it goes, see? It's happening again. I am moved today. I'm as much a scientist as I am a mother, and I feel this work every bit as much as I bring every ounce of rigor that I can to its scientific inquiry. So you will hear both themes, and please stop me with questions or comments any point along the time if, if you have any. So here's what I'm gonna tell you about, back to the science here. Um, I will tell you about the areas of adjustment that kids in high achieving schools, has for short is what we call it now. It's become a term, has, in the National Academy's report, that our kids tend to suffer from or be um, show their troubles with. And we also look at what both Doc and Ron mentioned, different aspects of relationships that we know really affect kids' adjustment. So we may have be, you or I may be troubled today, but if we have those relationships in place, these are the safety nets. You see what I'm saying, right? So one way to look at it is let's measure how the kids are doing. The follow-up to that is let's look at how those safety nets are doing and see where we're on that front. Um, I will tell you about how we identify areas that need attention. So if you think about it, there are generic statements I could be giving you, like, oh, gee, you know, have dinner with your kids more often, right? Or have a proper sleep time, or um, later school start. We don't do generic uh, or one-size-fits-all. What we do is look at data from each school and do what are called multivariate analyses that help us distill the top three. 
Am I making sense? So rather than telling you 15 things, everything matters, we say, in your school, these are the top three things that you should be paying attention to. How do we do that? One of them, one of the ways we do that is saying, what are the strongest predictors? So there are 15 things that all are associated with my depression levels. The question is, which are the top three I should be paying attention to? Right? And that you'll see uh, in the size of circles I'll just show you. And the other is we're looking at scores relative to national norms. So let me start with, this is just a slide uh, showing the kids who participated in the survey, which was, I think, about 90, 95% participation. So it's your school's demographics. I will be talking about your data relative to national norms. So aside from predictors, it's relative to norms. These are about 10,000 kids whom we've now studied in just in the last year, all from high achieving schools in these different parts of the country. So every time I tell you, here's where Bishop's kids are relative to norms, this is the group that I'm referring to. In the last year, high achieving schools from these different regions. And this includes independent schools as well as uh, um, public schools, um, cities, suburbs, the whole thing. So let me start with where we're at relative to norms. And I give you the, we look at girls, boys, and non-binary kids as well. As I'm sure you know, this is becoming something that among young people is more and more common, where there are more and more non-binary kids. And let me tell you right now, uh, you'll see this in the slides going along, every single school that we've been at, non-binary kids do show some you know, deviations as compared to boys. The challenges are just that much greater. But on substance use, you, you folks are across the board doing very well compared to norms. I draw your attention to this up here, clinically significant substance use. We all, uh, I'm going back to Doc's, it's not that he, uh, what is it he said? The kid is doing fine with me, it's just you that he doesn't like. <laughs> But developmentally appropriate thing about normative things, kids experiment with drugs and alcohol, right? We are talking about where it becomes troublesome. We do not want to hear about a child getting drunk every week, right? So what you're seeing, this black line here, tells you about national normative levels of where has kids are. And what you're seeing is on alcohol use and being drunk, both of them, uh, the percentage of kids at bishops, both girls and boys, as well as non-binaries, are well below the percentages and norms. Are you following? Yes. yes? Uh, same with cigarettes um, and with marijuana and vaping, which, as you know, is becoming a huge national crisis. So on substance use, the news is very, very good at bishops. Um, the few kids who are using relatively frequently, again, not to the problematic level, but using, why do they use? And here's what they tell us. The most common reason is uh, to socialize probably not surprising to you, followed by uh, self-medication to relieve stress. Um, uh, and then to sleep. Uh, marijuana, the biggest reason again is self-medication. And this is not how we ask the question, we really ask them, here are the reasons and one of them is stress. And I, I, I use the term self-medication followed by uh, to socialize and sleep. Now, I would like to draw your attention to this black box over here. Um, this is stimulants, Ritalin and Adderall, that are not prescribed by a doctor. So these are pills that the kids buy and sell amongst themselves in order to pull an all-nighter or get by on four hours of sleep. And once again, this is not different from other schools we've been at. It's just becoming um, a common theme. <coughs> Anxiety, 
In terms of the percentages of kids who are uh, above cutoffs, again, we're talking about clinically significant levels. We all have blah days and periods where we're not feeling good or nervous or anxious. We're talking about, let's say, one and a half standard deviations above. So the question is, how many kids fall in that, what we call the red zone? in each school. This is national norms, about 8% uh, on anxiety. Bishops, boys and girls are well below in terms of percentages. Non-binary kids, as in every school, tend to be higher in terms of the percentages that are struggling with serious anxiety or depression and rule breaking. Now, I would like to tell you, this should not, I, I, this is, may look a little misleading. It's 17% of kids who are non-binary, but the number of bi non-binary kids itself is pretty small. Right? So I don't want you to feel like this is an overall picture of the school. If you adjusted for percentage by kids, uh, by the number of kids, it wouldn't look nearly as bad. That said, this is definitely a group that pretty much in every school we do need to be paying attention to. Any questions about how I'm explaining the data so far? No? Okay. Salient risk and protective factors. Uh, which are the aspects of relationships that we measure and what are the most important at bishops? Uh, we look at, as you might expect, many, many aspects of parent-child relationships because we are important to our kids, whether we like it or not, or they like it or not. Uh, we uh, look at aspects of alienation, which is really a sense of distance from mom and dad, and when we have same-sex families, we provide that option too, but we do ask separately for mom and dad, or parent one and parent two. Criticism is overly high standards, I can't meet mom's standards. Expectations are appropriately high. Communication is my parents help me understand myself better. Trust, feeling, accept as I am. This is all over the media and our helicopter parenting. And what we do is we don't say anything unless we can validate and research. So we've started measuring this. And the short answer, it never seems to be important. So there's a big media hype about helicopter parenting and the data do not bear this out. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see a thing. And we say this in our American psychologists. There is, a, I'm going to just do a little parenthetical set of comments here. It astounds me the level of judgment that people sometimes have about hygiene school kids and parents, about us. I mean, this, this term, like, helicopter has now morphed into snow-plowing parents. Have you seen that? Say, yeah. so, excuse me? And what might that be? When this college admission scandal came out, uh, I did a, a, a podcast with the American Psychological Association, and of course they asked me about helicoptering and snow plowing and whatnot, and I, I said respectfully, I would like us to take a step back. Which one of us has not, certainly I did, get SAT tutoring from my kids? Which one of us doesn't want our kids to do the best they can? It's different to say, and why the judgment? Does name calling get us anywhere? So number one, where's the data? Number two, which one of us is not helping our kids where we can? Number three, why is that and when is that overindulgence? Do we have the data? So this, as you can tell, I went off on a complete, <laughs> went off on a completely different, but that's what the interview ended up being about. So we're measuring this, and I promise you I will come back to you if I find any evidence that helicopter parenting the ways overly you know, intrusive in kids' life. If that is a major prediction of, of the biggest problems we're seeing, which is serious depression and self-harm and crippling anxiety. We have not seen those data. I will let you know if we ever do. Um, involvement, supervision, how much does your, do your parents really know about what you're doing, how much do they try to know? And this is a big one. 
It's one we actually made up in our research on uh, high achieving schools about 10 years ago, which is not just discipline, but actual repercussions. How serious would the repercussions from your parents be if they found you? at a cake party, smoking weed, and so on. And this is, this is uh, what I would call a culture-specific risk factor, so to speak, that middle-class families are not necessarily as worried about. Certainly in our communities, it's a big deal because substance use tends to sometimes get out of hand. So uh, at bishops of all of the, and this is only a subset, right? All these that are listed here, just to give you an idea, it's probably more like 15 or so dimensions of parent-child relationships. What are the top three predictors here? The size of these circles tells you uh, the magnitude of associations with kids' symptoms. Right? Make sense? So, and I remember I asked you, so I may be depressed. What of these 15 things makes me depressed or is related to my depression? The size of those big blue circles tells you the relative importance of these in terms of their ramifications for kids' adjustment at bishops. So this is not generic. This is here. The biggest one, not surprisingly, is feeling alienated from parents. We all have those periods of, I don't like my mom, I remember the first time my kids looked at me uh, with that look of, I really don't like you. <laughs> it just broke my heart. And no one prepares you for that, do they? It just broke my heart. There are these two who said, no, I'm sitting next to mom, no, I'm sitting next to mom, and then you get this look like, who are you? And it was heartfelt. Anyway, now and then it's all right, it's developmentally appropriate, but when it carries on and our kids start feeling removed and distant from us and that sense of alienation persists, that tends to be related strongly to their, make sense? Yeah. Containment, their repercussions, perceived repercussions for drugs, drug use and alcohol use is very important. Parents sometimes tend to be a little, um, how should I say, laid back about this saying, well, you know, could be fine. Amy isn't valedictorian, for valedictorian, doing well in all his classes, and is playing lacrosse and doing popular. So what if I found vodka in his closet? There is a so what. In one of our studies, it's a longitudinal study, we followed kids from sixth grade to the age of 28. Uh, by the time they were in their late 20s, uh, high achieving schools, 40% uh, of these young men had a diagnosis, psychiatric diagnosis of addiction to drugs or alcohol, not abuse, but dependence on. And we also found that the level of this parent containment in high school, in the 12th grade, was associated with the likelihood of this. So it's not to scare you, it's to, but it is to say there are things that are happening in this world that didn't happen when we were, certainly when I was young, which was, it, it, think times have changed. And this availability of substance and so on, it, it is not a huge issue at bishops, but it is something to be watchful for as much as alienation. Just be careful. Wherever we draw the line, our kids will do a few steps further. Yes? Okay. And communication was the third one of these. So relative to norms, once again, those are the big predictors. So now we're saying, how are we doing in terms of where you stand? Very well. This is a good community. There is a health, a healthiness. Is that, is that the word, healthiness? Must be a word, right? Let's use it. Let's use it. There's a healthiness uh, that, that, that I pick up, the data clearly corroborate. The, so what you're seeing here is what is the percentage of kids who are in that red zone in terms of parent, really feeling alienated from parents who really are uh, saying my parents have very few repercussions or have, uh, cannot communicate and you're well below norms on that. Make sense? 
Feeling good? Social media and peers. Uh, obviously, another big difference, so we have parents, peers, and school climate. Many aspects of social media we look at, including uh, negative comments from others, comparisons, you know, FOMO, and feeling like my life is not as good as yours, and um, such. Envy, um, feeling jealous of kids who do better. Uh, Sexual harassment is a, sort of a big term. The actual questions are a little less uh, scary. More <coughs> things like uh, people making unwelcome comments about you or calling you gay or uh, in, a, in a negative way, a faggot, in a derogatory sort of way. Victimization is feeling bullied or left out. And friendship quality is having a good friend um, at school. So once again, this is a subset of all the variables we measure. And the question again is, what at bishops are the top three on all our peer values? Sexual harassment, not surprisingly, um, and negative comments on social media. Here is what I want to draw your attention to, this issue of comparisons. It is deeply troubling to me, and I do not believe there is a single school I have been at in the last, and I'm pretty much at one school every week at this point, where I don't see this blue circle up. Um, I think kids have got so used to Snapchat and Instagram and so on, it's a way of life for them. And I don't think they have really comprehended the degree of damage that this can do uh, to their self-concept. Are you with me? So one of the things, and I'll be meeting with the peer group later as well, that uh, conversations that I've started ha having with the kids directly is, does this really help? Does it really make you feel good? What are the downsides? Let's give this some thought, rather than just saying this is what everybody does. If you still decide to do it, well, fine, but let's get this conversation going. Am I making sense? I'm sure you've all experienced this yourself. Certainly I have, you know, looking on Facebook and looking where all my friends are and saying, well, I'm so happy for you, but <laughs> if I have to be honest. Um, and these, these kids, you know, adolescence, again, is a time when your self-concept is so fragile with, in between the hormones and the changes and the academics and the dating and the what have you. To be constantly comparing yourself with someone else is just so dicey. There is another study that came out, which is in that National Academy's report, which is so troubling. It showed that kids who were it's a longitudinal study of maybe 50 years. Kids who were in high-achieving schools actually did more poorly decades later than did kids equally affluent in middle-achieving schools. Question is why? Because I think the authors called it big fish, little pond effect. Everybody's competing with already stellar everybody else. How do you stand out? in a group where everybody's outstanding? And then how do you maintain your possession as, to, as head of the pack? Are you with me? So this is, this, this is then what makes for not just constant comparisons, but uh, almost hypervigilance, which is, are you, who's catching up? So unhealthy. So it's in, again, in the Americans, we're, we're, the good news is the conversation has started now. And we're getting the, thank God, the university is involved in this conversation as well. Because we can, I can talk to communities and schools till I'm blue in the face, as long as universities have those outlandish criteria. Yes. We are not going to be able to change. 
right? I mean, we'll, we will do what we can, and we'll try and be balanced, you know, with the number of APs we offer, which I think need to be limited, the kids say. Many things we can do at the community level, but that conversation at the national policy also ne level needs to happen, and it is beginning, it has begun. So, one step forward. That was a long thing on social media comparisons, but it is so destructive for our kids. How are we doing compared to norms at bishops on feeling negative comments? Remember, again, this is the extremes. Uh, you folks are just at, at about national norms. Social media comparisons, this is now almost 78% of girls who are on the high end. In general, girls tend to do more of this comparison. We've seen this again in our research nonstop. Uh, also, envy tends to be more of an issue. Um, so this is just something for those of us who have daughters uh, to be keeping in our minds and having these conversations about, now, what do, what do you value about you? Who do I value about you? What do you value about yourself? And how much of this is going on? Are you with me? Any questions or thoughts about any of this so far? Should I just keep going? Yeah. So, what do you say in terms of the middle achieving schools and curriculum? Because test has proven that some of those kids do better over time because they don't feel as much pressure. They don't feel as much competition. Yes, early on. So, okay. I mean, the bar is very high. If you've got people who are all performing the 97th percentile, and you have to somehow be on the top of those 97 percentileers, right? Uh, nothing but excellence is good enough. Uh, on sexual harassment, uh, I mean, I've just highlighted the ones that were in the big blue circles. Interestingly, it's boys here who were a little higher than norms, and this may have to do, I don't know, it's something we could look more into around those comments of gay and faggot, and, and say more about the LGBTQ issues in, in a few minutes. Um, we talked about pressure, you mentioned pressure. We actually measure different aspects of felt pressure to see where is this coming from. So uh, I feel academic pressure to get into good college, good grades, take AP courses from, and we ask about pretty much everybody in their lives, uh, from coaches, uh, myself, parents, teachers, and because of competition, back to that, because of competition with, with friends. So these are all the different pressure uh, variables. And recently we started asking about this too, uh, around overextension, overcommitment, which is how much strain do you feel from all your extracurriculars, but also how much do you enjoy them? My own daughter played field hockey. She was a goalie in, in, in high school, and it was a very time intensive. They had you know practices every day and team dinners and what have you. But the, I think the girls enjoyed it. They had a sense of camaraderie and so on. So the question, this is a new question we've started asking in our surveys to see what's the relative importance of this in, in, uh, relative to uh, pressures overall. And time, how much is time feeling overextended with time an issue? So here are your three big predictors. This, I'm glad we started asking this question. So the, what you're seeing in this big, 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 big blue circle here is strain relative to enjoyment. So we could look at strain alone, or we could look at enjoyment alone of extracurriculars. But I think what became clear to all of us, and we've all sort of been working, all these young people now grew up experiencing all this. So they have a good sense, and they bring their insights into our survey, which keeps getting refined with each iteration. It's not strain per se, it's not enjoyment per se, but it's how much are you feeling more strained 
Or how much are you feeling strained relative to how much you enjoy? It's that ratio. That is, does that make sense? On balance, it is good. This means if you feel more strained than enjoyment, that's what that means. If your playing field hockey brings you more pain than pleasure, much more pain than pleasure, then you are more likely to be depressed, anxious. It makes sense, right? Same for our jobs, our marriages, anything that we commit time to. If it brings you more, more pain than pleasure. So now we're going beyond the sort of simple explanations of, oh, it's extracurricular activities, or, oh, it's just time. It's not time. It's not being involved in extracurriculars. It is the quality. It is what they experience. And some of that is tied to, of course, the forgivingness, I think, sometimes of the coaches or the band leaders or the play directors saying, how much, where do you draw, 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 draw the line and say, okay, you can back off now. Are you with me? I mean, why, why should extracurriculars be a strain? They shouldn't, right? They should be fun. <laughs> so stop and think about that. When, when, when I was a kid, we used to play cricket in the cul-de-sac and say, you're out, no, I'm not. And this went on for a bit, then we'll all go home and we'll come back and do it the next day. Now, what happens to our kids now? By the first and second grade, they're in travel teams, okay? Uh, and the whole town shows up, and a kid strikes out, oh my God, he was really off his game today, or she's really not doing so well. Seriously? What, are we preparing them for the Olympics here in the second grade? Why are we doing this? These kids do not have a moment where they're not being scrutinized. And I was telling the admin team yesterday, I, I, often when I speak now, I'm reminded of kids in the pre-industrial era where they literally do not have free time. They're working nonstop. What are we doing here? This is wrong. So this is, I went off on this little segue to say, this is an important issue. Of course we want our kids to do play field hockey and be in plays and what have you. But we need to keep an eye on how much are we demanding. They are, we are not preparing them for the Olympics. And we are not preparing them for Broadway in the fourth or fifth grade. Or even as a junior in high school. Somewhere there needs to be. I heard recently about, I was at a school in Washington, D.C. last week, uh, heard about concussions and how the kids are, you know, have a concussion, the tendency is to just look the other way. If it's a star player, you play. Just a thought. I don't want to go past this academic pressure from competition with friends, so all, the, all those pressures. Teachers did not make the list, parents did down here, but the biggest one again was trying to stay ahead of your peers. You see how we're trying to get at much more a nuanced way of looking at what's going on with our kids rather than saying, oh, pressure is a problem. So what can we do here at Bishops? These are our top three. Here you are relative to norms. This is high levels. Remember, again, it's not average levels. People who are in that high level or red zone, uh, they're failing it from parents. Remember now, take a step back. Kids are not highly depressed and anxious, so that's the good news. Keep that in mind as you look at this slide, but also see that this, these two things are, A, they're in the blue circles, and B, they're above norms. So to, for parents as a community uh, to take a step back, and for parents within families to take a step back and have this conversation. Just talk to your kids about it. Simple as that. Yes? Yes. 
Yeah, because remember the schools we're going to, schools like bishops. So all these kids have very high self-imposed standards of excellence, right? So almost all of them say, yes, very strongly agree that I must do, get great grades and I must get into a good college. It's the rare kid who doesn't say that. You see? So, and this, myself, really is a conglomeration of all of these other factors, you know? So it's an internalized pressure from everybody else. So the, our job is now to figure out where, can, where are we seeing the sources of pressure that we can possibly intervene in. Question? And is that not highlighted because it's also not predictive yes. of anxiety depression? So our, my, the way we do this is, it may be high, but if it's not making the kids miserable, we're not gonna put it in that top three list necessarily. This is what's really important. When I tell you whether it's 25 kids who are highly depressed or 55 or 100, the point is that levels of depression are related to these things. So this is what need, we need to pay attention to. Make sense? Um, higher strain than commitment is, you know, pretty much at or below norms. So it's not something I'd worry about, but um, pay attention to because 20% is really not such a good... I wouldn't want it to be that high, would you? 20% of kids saying I have much more strain than I do enjoyment from my extracurriculars. Um, school climate, I'm not gonna run through all of these. There are a bunch of different dimensions of school climate. Why? Because the people with whom we work, uh, uh, like Ron and Harlan and Janice, all these people, this is what they can control more directly, yes? So we have a very in-depth set of measures of school climate, and I'll tell you, uh, the top three, LGBTQ plus discrimination. So I think the number of kids who fall in this category is probably about 20%. About a fifth of the school's population fall in this category of not you know, identifying as straight. Uh, and kids who feel that sense of feeling, yeah. Yes, we asked separately about, yes, I should have run that. See, we asked separately about ethnicity. In fact, we used to ask only about ethnicity. Do you feel discriminated against? And, but then recently, one of our schools actually said, because there are so many more kids who are identifying as non-straight and even trans, we've started asking about that. So uh, it's not against 20% of kids, which is not a trivial number, but this is a big predictor and something to pay attention to. Kids who feel like everybody in school cheats. And we know this for a fact, that in these schools, again, if you're talking about that level of achievement pressures, cheating is not, un yes? You're not surprised by this. And, and, and a sense of fairness, that rules are enforced fairly across students. It's not that some students get better treatment than others. There's transparency and fairness in the kinds of disciplinary actions that happen. You with me? These are our top three at Bishops. Don't you think that high cheating and low fairness are related? They are, but that's the beauty of why we do these regressions. Because if you think about it, all this stuff is related. You know, uh, kids who feel alienated from teachers also feel like kids pick on them. They also feel like there's not much fairness. That's why we measure so much to try and distill, okay, they're all overlapping. If I'm depressed, I'm also anxious, I'm also likely to drink too much. The question is, what's uniquely important? That's why we come to this point. 
Where are we at relative to norms? Uh, so these are a bunch of school climate dimensions, bullying. Uh, so there's a feeling like there's a culture of bullying at school. You're below norms there. Peer support is pretty good. Caring adult. Uh, I think Doc mentioned this. This is a little bit concerning to me. It didn't come out as a big predictor, but 8% of girls, 14% of boys, 25% of girls saying uh, there's a lack of at least one caring person at school for me. And it's, it mirrors, I think, what, what Doc was saying, that if it's even 8%, it's something we should be thinking about, because this is clearly a very loving, caring community of parents and school personnel. So our job is we, we track these numbers over time and say, are we making a difference in these things? Uh, fairness, it's not a large group of kids, 6 7%, uh, but um, student voices participating in decisions, again, doing very well on that front. Ethnic diversity. Uh, well, parent community involvement, as <laughs> is evident in this crowd here, the kids feel like the parents care about the school and the school cares about parents, so you're doing very well on that front. Um, teacher alienation. Uh, again, this, this is all around, yeah, something to pay attention to. It did not come out as our, one of our top three predictors, but it does, it's worrisome to me to see 20, 25% of kids saying, my kids, my teachers. So the questions go something like this. Uh, uh, teachers or adults at school whom I care about would be disappointed in me if I didn't get the best grades, if I didn't get into a prestigious college, if I didn't make a lot of money. So it's again that sense of my self-concept self is tied to, or my sense of self being accepted by people I care about is tied to how well I do, which is always a perilous, dangerous slope for our kids to be on. You with me? And I don't think this is necessarily what teachers mean to say or do, being a teacher myself. Um, but if our kids perceive us that way, it's a conversation worth having. Yes? Um, cheating, about 20, 25%. You're lower than norms, so that's good. But it's about 25% of kids nationally who say it's just a way of life. That's what we do. Um, diversity. In terms of ethnicities, 35% uh, here, higher in other schools. Uh, as you see, I'm not white myself. It's a reality that in high achieving schools, they're mostly white. So ethnic minorities of all kinds are a minority. And to some degree, they will experience some. Uh, I remember my son was in the, uh, I think, second grade when 9-11 happened. And some kids on the bus started calling him Osama. And this went on for a while. A little skinny little Indian kid. So, you know, it happens. It's a reality of life, and all we can do as grown-ups is uh, uh, help those of us who are white, help them understand, not our kids understand that this is just not a good thing. Bullying of any kind, whether it's an ugliness of any kind, sexual harassment, racial, or just unkindness, is not cool. We just don't do that. Um, mm. This is just the LGBTQ plus kids who feel like they are treated differently because of their sexual orientation. Um, this is, uh, whom do you talk to at school if you're troubled? And most of them talk to advisors and teachers, which I love. This was for me, this was my biology teacher in high school. I still try and look for her. Uh, to thank her. She may well have saved my life, I guess, in some ways. Um, 
so teachers do this, just like, again, I'm referring to Doc, you, uh, teachers do this, and it's a beautiful thing, and you see this once again, so I love research, the numbers show you, the teachers at Bishops are there for their kids, for your kids, 38% of kids, even more than advisors are talking to their, uh, to their teachers, coaches. Now, this uh, 28%, I should I should I should say is it's not that they will not talk to because there's no one for them. That was the earlier slide, more like you know six eight percent. This is sometimes kids will say, you know, I I a young boy was telling me tenth uh, grader the other day. I I talked to my brother. He's we're very close. You know, he's in college where we talk every day. Others talk to their parents or somebody else. So this is not necessarily because there is no one at school. It, sometimes kids say I prefer just I have other people. Um, but this gives you a good sense of the availability of adults at school to be that safety net, as I said, for kids when we fall down on the job, which all of us do sometimes, right? Directions for interventions. I have studied the construct of resilience, which is basically doing well in the face of adversity, and this is the single most important take-home message from about 70 years' worth of research. Resilience rests fundamentally on relationships, more than anything else, more than self-control or you know, perseverance or stick-to-itiveness or, or grit, God forbid. Um, I can talk about grit if anyone has questions about that, <laughs> which we should talk about at some point. Anyway, uh, relationships are number one, and this is a central message I feel seen and loved for the person I am at my core. What does this represent? Unconditional acceptance? Yes? You with me? I feel seen and loved for the person I am at my core, as opposed to my achievements and accomplishments. As this is true for kids, it is true for us, the grown-ups, who must give them that feeling of being seen and loved. Are you with me? If we are to give out that to our kids, we need to get it ourselves. It's a mathematical equation. It's a reality of life. You cannot give that which you do not receive. You cannot give if you are empty. You need to be replenished yourselves. This holds true for parents, and it holds true for teachers. I have written a paper that's called Who Mothers Mommy, which I'd love to share with you. So all of this is on my website. But if you stop and think of it, and this is not to say that dads don't need this. Of course, fathers need the same thing. But the reality is, much of the, most of the time, it's moms who are the primary caregivers of, of kids, right? And who pick up most of that. We're dealing, we're working with dads separately. But for right now, the question is, how do we ensure the replenishment of these caregivers who put out so much, who are, as I say here, first responders to these kids who are so besieged and beleaguered all the time? You with me? So watching out for your own replenishment has to be our top priority. More than anything else, you need to feel like, I am able to be there for my child. You must understand this. You cannot be there fully if you are feeling broken and defeated yourself. And I have been there. I'm very, uh, very candid with you. As I said, I've done this. I'm 61 years old now. In my third, almost 30 years of being a parent, there have been periods of times when I said, I'm really not up to this job. As devoted as I am to it, it is my number one thing. I just did not have the strength at different points in my life. If I was not able to, and if I hadn't been able to get that kind of love, why not just call it what it is to get me back on my feet? and help me stay there. I don't think I could have done it. Am I making sense? So this is, we are so 
uh, hardworking. We're so sincere in our work. We're so busy. It is something we just do not think about, and that is wrong for ourselves, for our kids, and ourselves. For ourselves and our kids, we must pay attention. A paper that's just coming out is on the other side of who mothers mommy is who tends the teachers. Who tends these people who are not just teaching academic subjects, but also watching out for their kids' mental health? So that's one, communication makes sense. Start early. If you wait till high school, the kids, the horse is out of the barn. Watch out for alienation. Get professional help. Don't be coy about it. It's a good thing to do. If your gut tells you something's not wrong and I'm not able to get through, get help. Limit setting, especially around substance use, and be a good role model. I, I mean, kids do what, what they see, not what we tell them to do. And the, be a good role model, not, not just about decency and about uh, being kind to others, but also about ensuring your own well-being. Don't let them watch you being, becoming frazzled and not prioritizing your own well-being. Am I making sense? So people say, oh, you're telling moms to take better care of themselves or dads. So I said, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, just prioritize being taken care of. It can happen. We do this. We have a program called Authentic Connections, a whole separate arm of our work, where we take care of people. Where there's, it's all about love. Where it's done, it's doable. It's all there in this community. It's just making it happen. More on that later if you have questions. So recommendations. So that was for parents. What do we do? Anyone want to take a picture of that slide if you didn't? Oh, it'll be available. Yes, yeah, on the video. Uh, move on, Sonia. Okay, Aaron, I will. Uh, <laughs> for for peers, what to do? Um, well, of course, we'll talk about this negative bullying and stuff and so on. But the other side of that is some some of this will happen among kids. Is for us to be available to them to talk about their when they do feel hurt and rejected and left out. And social media comparison, this conversation is ongoing. Uh, in a school I was at recently, I think I said this again yesterday, there was a couple of senior girls who came up and said to me, we'd like to speak to the whole middle school about our experience. We were very good friends when we were in elementary school. Then in middle school, we were in direct competition with each other for the same coveted spots. So we stopped talking to each other. And luckily, we've got back together in, uh, in, in high school. We'd like to speak to the entire middle school and tell them, hey, this is what can happen. This is how it creeps up on you. This is why it's insidious and destructive. Don't go there. Talk to us if you want to. You can compete with somebody and still be friends. You with me? Um, pressure with friends, again, this issue of competition. I think it has to become a community-wide conversation. I mean, it's not, it's not bad to be in competition, but how can, how can I compete with my fellow colleague in academia, We're both applying for the same grant? One of us is going to get it, and the other isn't. But how do we get to a point where we have this conversation, saying, well, somebody's going to win and someone's going to lose? Can we still be friends? How can we still be friends? Am I making sense? I've already talked about strain and enjoyment and backing off. Talk to your coaches and your drama people and your theater people and your band people and everybody in extracurricular and saying we all need to keep a lid on how much kids are feeling strain as opposed to enjoyment from these things that are supposed to be fun. Transparency and fairness in rules for school climate. Cheating, workloads, 
will obviously exacerbate this. I'm not saying that it's a cause, it's a cause alone. We have to have these conversations. But um, overly high workloads clearly exacerbate that. And this, this issue of LGBTQ plus discrimination, I think, is a conversation that absolutely has to happen. Your values are clear to me. You're good people. Your kids are good people. This has not registered that this is happening around here. And 20% of the school, that's a large number. Yes? So, it's a conversation. We know it's there. We'll make it happen. Um, to give you some hope about how well things can change, this was a school, uh, interestingly, it was, I think, a Jesuit school that we've worked with them for uh, years now, did what I'm doing with you all, did the data collection, came back, presented to parents, faculty, students, and so on, had discussions with the admin and students and so on. So if you see here, this is in, I think, 2016, the clinically significant, rates of clinically significant symptoms, followed by the next bar is the same in the following year. So this is anxious, depressed, withdrawn, depressed, somatic problems, which is like headaches and so on without a reason, without a medical reason, rule breaking, which includes cheating, aggressive behaviors, and this is overall internalizing, externalizing. Bottom line is, from one year to the next, there's a decrease in pretty much everything. So it works. It's like, why do you go to a teaching hospital if you have something wrong with you? Because you want research, you want data, so why should I do this? When we do this careful distillation of what the issues are in a particular school, and we have a candid but caring conversation, candid but collaborative, compassionate, mutually compassionate conversation about these very difficult issues, we do see these changes in how our kids are doing. Make sense? Um, this is a little uh, thing called the WBI, which is, uh, I think, uh, I don't know if this is gonna work. It's a little 10 minute measure Maybe it's not going to play here. Well, I'm not going to perseverate on this. It's a 10-minute measure that looks at overall symptoms, depression, anxiety, rule-breaking, substance use, and school climate, that we are administering. Some schools are doing it as often as monthly. There are a couple of schools that have had suicides. Uh, so every month they're tracking on this. And this allows you to subset down to gen by gender, sex, grade, and ethnicity. So you could subset to girls who are in the ninth grade of, of Asian descent and watch on each of these indices where they are. So if you identify a particular subgroup that you know, like once you have the data here, they know well, maybe it's seniors who are of senior boys, who are particularly high on rule breaking, you can track them on a monthly basis or semester basis or yearly basis, okay? So these, this is a summary now of things uh, that at bishops we need to pay attention to most urgently. The stars are, looking at all these top three across dimensions, the stars are the most important. These are things that are both high in the circles, being big predictors, and high relative to norms. You with me? So now, remember I said the two ways where you figure out what's important at bishops. The stars tell you what are the things that we really need to be paying attention to the most. Uh, social media comparisons, negative social media, and pressure coming from, again, comparisons, competition, plus felt pressure from parents. Overall, uh, the top substance that's being used is alcohol, vaping, you guys are very low on, as you saw. 
top symptom is rule breaking in terms of comparisons with norms. When you break down within uh, grade and gender uh, and ethnicity, substance use males are highest, not surprisingly. Uh, and this is mixed up, I'm sorry, it's flipped around. Uh, symptoms, non-binary. If you go by grade level, it's juniors in this school, which is not always the case. It may be a cohort effect. I don't know if your, your juniors have stood out to you in any way. The last school I, I had, it was this year's seniors who were juniors when we had uh, assessed them. So I don't know if it's something about junior year or if it's a cohort effect that uh, explains this. Uh, top five adults students are confiding in. Again, it's uh, this is such lovely data. Uh, 38% teachers, 35 to advisors. Nice 31% speak to the athletics or uh, club coach, um, and 23% to guidance counselors. And uh, this 20, 28% again, I'm going to remind you, it's more the 8 to 10% that we worry about who really feel like there's nobody there. But overall. The news is very good on many dimensions. The percentage at extremes, you folks are well below what we're seeing in other high-achieving schools on depression, anxiety, rule-breaking, substance use. These are individual attributes that I didn't even go into because you're doing so well on them. Uh, and most aspects of uh, parents functioning, except for perceptions of uh, pressure and on school climate. And uh, that's it. That's my little team. See, they're all young people, which makes it so nice for me because they have lived the stuff. They have just experienced it. They know it. They know what TikTok is, which, uh, thank you, Harlan. <laughs> I asked them at dinner last time. Harlan sent me a little thing on TikTok because I had no idea what it was. But it helps us keep current to have, uh, so we've got on the one hand my 30 years of research and on this hand the computer expertise and the insights into what's going on in schools that we bring together and continually refine our work. Um, I don't know if we have time for a few questions or we don't. I'm sorry, I tried to speak as quickly as I could, but I hope I'll be back here to speak to you again someday. Thank you very much. Thank you. So when we scheduled Dr. Luther for uh, these uh, today and, and yesterday, she asked me, so you scheduled me for two different sessions with parents uh, this morning and also tonight. And I said, yes, because you're going to have a big audience this morning. And some of them are going to want to hear you again tonight. And many of them are going to tell their friends, you really got to see her tonight. So I don't know how many of you will be able uh, to make it or spread the word, but we set up the session for this evening. Uh, really for that purpose. Um, if you want to hear more, if you want to make sure that some of your friends can attend. So uh, please let people know or come yourself uh, tonight, 6.30 in a Geyer Auditorium. Uh, there's a lot of information here and I saw it first with uh, her assistant Nina Kumar along with uh, the admin team. And the takeaway is, is positive as we heard that we're better than the norm, but the norm isn't so great. And there are areas that we know uh, we need to work on, and we need to work on as a, a team at school, we need to work on in partnership with you, uh, but we wanted to make sure that we had the information so we knew uh, which problems we were tackling and why we were doing so. When I interviewed for this position, um, what seems like a long time ago, 
And last year when I talked to you, I, I told you that uh, student well-being was a, a top priority for me because of what I had read and what I had seen. And this is, uh, consider this a really important start. Um, Dr. Luther reminded us, you, you're not going to be able to solve everything at, um, at once. Take your time, figure out what you can do, and start to make some progress. So uh, we're going to spend a lot of time working with this data. We're going to spend a lot of time working with you to see how we can improve these well-being outcomes for your children. It is possible. It is possible to do well and to feel well. Uh, it's hard. It's hard right now to have teenagers have those two things, but we're going to do everything we can to try to make that possible, and uh, Dr. Luther's work is essential for us in being able to do that. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, all of you, and um, I'll see you uh, next time.